Well, good morning, fellowship. Good morning. Right, I see you, JJ had you already primed, ready to get started here. So my name is Larry Kayser, and I'm the marriage pastor here at Fellowship, and I also have the privilege of uh, being a part of our elder board. And I'm really glad to be here with you this morning. You know, a week ago Saturday, I returned home from a spring break trip to Florida that uh, plowed some new territory for my wife and I as grandparents. So we were able to go with one of our daughters and son-in-law and three of their kids. But here's the, here's the new ground part. So the whole trip was completely planned and paid for by somebody besides us. It was great. We just had to show up. So we, we plowed some new ground last week with our first trip to Florida. I'm hoping we're still, this will become kind of a tradition for us. <laughs> this has been great. So, you know, one of the things about being in Florida last week is that the last three days, it got pretty windy and a bit chilly. And so each of the last three days, there were double red flags blowing straight out on the, in the breeze out over the beach. You know, those double red flags were warning flags that actually was severe enough that you weren't allowed to go in the water at all for the last couple of days because both of the size of the waves and the rip currents that were in the water. And so these flags are warnings. And, you know, over the last, this will be a month now, we have, in a sense, been flying the flags uh, over fellowship. We could have been running our own double red flags up because for the last four weeks, we've been talking about warnings. And, you know, like the flags on the beach, you know, those warnings weren't there to ruin our week. They were there for our good, right? They, they were there for our safety and for our good. And so the warnings that we've encountered here as we come to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, likewise, they're there for our good out of God's love and protection and care for us. You know, the first warning, we talked about the fact that there was a broad path and there was a narrow path. And the narrow path led to life and the broad path led to destruction. And it really said there are very few that find the narrow path. And then the next week, we were warned about the need to identify false teachers. And we were told that there were wolves in sheep clothing out there. And of course, we all know how dangerous a wolf would be to a sheep. So we know that. And then last week, you guys had Lloyd here. And you know what Lloyd talked about last week, honestly, I think is um, probably the most um, maybe thought-provoking and maybe even fear-provoking in us when you think about what he talked about last week. You know, this described a person who has orthodox beliefs or people that orthodox beliefs, not only did they have orthodox beliefs about Jesus, but they held it with passion. You know, Lloyd pointed out last week that when they cried out, Lord, Lord, did we not, that the doubling of that name in a Semitic world was a reminder that the writer was trying to tell us that that was a passionate plea. So you had people with an orthodox belief in Jesus who held it passionately, who then prophesied, healed, prayed, did all kinds of other works in the name of Jesus. And then you remember, of course, the response that Jesus gave to them was really, it's chilling to our heart. He said, 
Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I read that, it causes me some fear, some confusion, some like, what? Questions in my own mind. Because if somebody were to describe me as a Christian, I would hope that part of that description would be that I had a passionate belief in Jesus and who he was, and that I was finding ways to give my life away in the name of Jesus. I would hope that would be true about me, and, and I suspect you guys would hope it would be true about you. And so this story, in some ways, reminds me of a little bit of where we're going to the final warning, in the sense that it's, it's like you have... People, and if you were looking at them from the outside, and if you were just looking at things that they were doing in their lives, we'd have a hard time telling who was who and why. <clears throat> the outside of the cup is certainly not the answer to all of life's questions about our spiritual lives. And so possibly as we walk into the final warning this, this morning, maybe it will shed just a little insight into what Jesus was trying to say to these people who would look very similar to people that he would have embraced in the kingdom, at least on the outside. So the final warning is expressed through a well-known story. If, if you grew up in church, you probably were singing songs about this. There's a story about two builders who heard the same words, built two houses on two foundations. One of them, Jesus called wise, and one of them he called a fool or foolish. And it looks like they built essentially two identical homes. And here's the thing, that nothing different about these homes becomes visible until what? Yeah, until the calamities, the storms of life come and all of a sudden the foundations of homes that look incredibly similar are now revealed. So this final parable, I think it's really important to even think about the fact that out of that Jesus has chosen to make this the last story of the largest red letter section in the New Testament about the teaching of Jesus. There is something in this story that's really important. And I also think not only important, but has the potential in some ways to pull together a lot of principles and ideas out of the sermon in this one story. This really is trying to speak to us about what it means to be a grace-filled and obedient follower of Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you or your phone or an iPad or however you're following, you open them up to chapter 7, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29, and let's read along. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been built, founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, as we begin to sort out what this text is trying to tell us, what this story is communicating with us, I want to begin by showing you a picture of a house that's had its foundation revealed when the storm hit in full force. So that's a picture from a Florida beach from 2018. The house was fashioned from poured concrete, reinforced by steel cables and rebar, with additional concrete bolstering the corners of the house. The space under the roof was minimized so that wind could not sneak in underneath it and lift it off. The home's elevation on high pilings was meant to keep it above the storm surge of seawater that always accompanies powerful hurricanes. Here's the best part of this. There was a story and a little quote here uh, from the owner of the home. And then this is what he said during the interview. He said, I built this house myself, the man replied. I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. When the code called for two by six trusses, I used two by six trusses. I was told that a house built according to code could, not with, could, could withstand a hurricane. It did, and I did. This last sentence right here is the killer, or kicker. It says, I suppose no one else around here followed the code. You know, you can clearly see there that the right foundation made all the difference in the world. So why do you suppose so few people followed the code? Well, according to Forbes in 2019, Forbes magazine, the Insurance Institute of Business and Home Safety says that it would cost somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 to um, make this thing really Category 5 hurricane worthy. So in other words... This thing, it was going to cost you something to build this to code. So our story this morning really is about the right foundation. The right foundation is that one of these houses was built on the rock and one of them was built on the sand. So let's see if we can identify what does it mean to be built on the rock? What is that? So you'll take a look at verse 24. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So you remember that these men both heard the same words. Everyone who hears these words of mine. What words are we talking about? And we're talking about three chapters and probably more that Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount. He is directly referring to what he's been teaching and talking to his disciples and to the broader crowd about. Like, this is what it means to build your foundation on a rock. This is what, this is what I'm handing you this. This is, this is the truth. So, <laughs> you know, we've said it over and over again, but throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you can hear the words of Jesus constantly calling us to an obedience of the heart. Obedience that is open and honest enough to deal with our, our what's under the surface, what's under the iceberg. You know, we've shown that picture a lot of times, just getting us to constantly dig down and remember that what's going on underneath is way more important than what can be seen at the surface. So not just being obedient for the watching eyes of the world around, but 
The kind of obedience that allows God's spirit to speak to our heart, my heart, your heart, about motive, about attitude, about pride. To ask the spirit to help you build a spiritual and emotional bridge between our actions, our choices, and our motives. So the rock are the words of Jesus. This sermon, his instructions for living a life with a secure foundation. So they both heard the same words, okay? And they both experienced the same storms of life. And this is really crucial. So whether you build on the rock or you build on the sand, whether you obey or whether you disobey, whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's not like if the storms come, it's when the storms come. That is simply the case. You, you know, all of our lives, every life in this room is a lot like building a house in the path of a hurricane. It is, because no matter what we do, no matter where we build, no matter how we live, the storms of life are coming. We, we aren't going to escape them. You know, we'll find that when they come, that's the only time we discover our own foundation. So in some, time, in some ways, you know, storms are a gift to us in terms of revealing what we've built our life on. Gives us an opportunity to actually change. So what is the one difference between these two men? Why was one called a fool and the other one called wise? This is a, I think that the answer to that question is so utterly foundational to what it means to be a gospel follower, someone who embraces the gospel. You know, there isn't one of us in this room, not only are we not going to avoid the storms of life, we are not going to avoid failure. We are not going to avoid sin. We are not going to avoid letting other people down. We're not going to avoid having things going on in our life that nobody else knows about, at least for now. We're not going to avoid that. The gospel doesn't promise us that we won't sin. What the gospel promises us is that in the response of God to our sin, that our sin is forgiven, that our sin is covered by his grace, that our sin is covered by his blood. And so... The whole idea of what our foundation looks like isn't so much built on whether you really built the house really well. The whole point is how we respond to the words of God. Not just hear them, but respond. Now, in the text, it says the one uh, who does the word of God is the one who's built his house in the rock. And the other one says he does not do the word of God and he built his house on the sand. What I want to say to you is, and the Sermon on the Mount screams this at us, this can't just be, well, the one who tries really hard, like you try harder than I did, and you obeyed better than I did, your house is on the rock. Because I don't know about you, but when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I get done with those three chapters and I'm sort of undone about living like a true follower of Jesus. Because if I have to do that in my own effort, 
If I've got to try so hard to love my enemy, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, you know, to give in secret, to manage my anger so it doesn't turn into like murdering a person, to navigate my lust and my, I mean, think about it, that my lust can be adultery, that my anger can be so serious in my mind, it's like committing murder to somebody you love. I mean, I want you to think about the task that Jesus has laid out in front of us for being a follower of Jesus. So if the only reality is I'm gonna try harder than you are, I'm exhausted just talking about it. So our foundation reveals itself by the way we respond to what Jesus has told us, okay? So I wanna describe for you what I'm gonna categorize as two different responses to the words of Jesus. And they're not quite as simple as I, one did and one didn't. The first one I'll, I'm gonna call, what it like means to build your life on the rock means that you live with a humble, surrendered obedience. And you can shorten that if you want to surrendered obedience. Surrendered obedience, the word surrender, I, I mean, I chose that word very purposely because surrender does a couple of things immediately. One, it puts you in a vulnerable place. The word surrender is a vulnerable word. The word surrender is like, you know, here, take me. And so surrender is saying to God, I, I want you to lead me. I want you to have your way. I want you to be the person that leads my life. I want to be the first one to admit my need. I, I'd like to be the first one who would admit my mistakes. I want to be the person who is what I'm really sure of about my Christian faith, really sure of, is that apart from the work of Christ and the grace of God, I cannot be a follower of Jesus. I, I can't. It is his work and it is his grace and it is the work in me or in you that give, would give us both the strength, the desire, the hope, the prayer to become a follower of Jesus the way he describes in the Sermon on the Mount. So if I were to go backwards in the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm gonna take a minute and just do this, what does it look like to live in surrendered obedience with our whole heart? Like all of us, our choices, our desires, our emotions. Like what does it look like for us to, to live in surrendered obedience? Let's go back through the sermon just a little. One is we would build our lives on the, on the rock when we mourn our sin. I don't know about you, but it's, it's easy not to mourn sin little or big. You know, when we really, when we sin against another person, the first thing that happened is we sinned against God. And we've sinned against God because we've hurt or harmed a person that he created and he loves. It is the great story of marriage. You're married to a daughter of God or a son of God. So when we mistreat our spouse, we mistreat 
a son or a daughter or a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law of God. And so it's easy for us to not mourn our sin or when, when we build our life on the rock, when we hate lust rather than excuse it or entertain it. When we go the extra mile, when we seek to restore those we've wronged, regardless of the cost to ourselves, whether that's our reputation or our finances, when we have the humility to recognize our own sin as a log in our own eye before we remove the splinter in someone else's eye. You know, this text right here is one of the most important texts, I think, in resolving pain and conflict between us and Matthew 7. You know, there have been countless marriages, parent-child, teenager relationships, you know, co-workers, neighbors who have come to some place of disagreement or some place of judgment, and we get so fixated on our own perspective that we cannot remove the log from our own eye before we address the splinter in the eye of the other person. And we just willfully ignore it. Our pride and our stubbornness, just we just, we just stay there. And the great challenge of this text is, you know, I know that when I, when I get angry, hurt, or I think I'm right, and I'm arguing with Ann or was one of my teenagers or somebody, I can be the first person that doesn't want to take the log out of my own eye. And in the moment, apart from God's help, I don't take it out. It's a, it's a work of God in me that stops me to say, take this thing, this telephone pole out of my own eye before we take the splinter out of another person's eye. We let our yes be yes and our no be no without excuse. When we give to the needy, not expecting anything in return, when we don't advertise our good deeds with a write-up on a social media site, when the words don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing aren't just words, but they are how we do generosity. When we invest in people where moth and rust cannot destroy, and when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I just want you to think about that sentence in the culture we currently live in. We pray for our enemies and, and, and those who persecute us. I know many of us who are followers of Jesus feel persecuted and feel put on and pressed on in our culture. And it is so easy to see them all as enemies. They're wrong and they're not only wrong, they are legislating, they are doing things that are, that are in our eyes, they're immoral and they're wrong. And this, this uh, difference between fighting for a cause and hating the person who holds it are two different things. They are two different things. And it isn't what the Bible, it's, it's not what it's telling us here. When we turn our anxiety over to Christ because we see that he feeds the birds of the air and clothes the wildflowers. Don't you want to live? I wish I could live that way. I wish I could live that way. I wish I could... I could look at the lilies of the field and the, the grass of the field and just know God clothes them and don't, don't we mean every bit as much to, to him as the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? Of course we do. But here, the, what I'm trying to say is I can't do any of this stuff without, this, without God's spirit. Jesus sent 
in the, the text I started to in last week's warning, remember what he said at the end. Depart from me, I never knew you. Not depart from me, you didn't obey the Ten Commandments or you didn't do enough good things. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. So what I'm talking about even right here is like learning a surrendered obedience is you asking God, God, for you to do that work in me, I am going to know that you are present. For me to give that gift and keep it quiet and never sneak it into a conversation. You know, for me to look at the log in my own eye first once. That's God at work. And, and see, the beauty of that is that's how you know he's present. He is in relationship with you because he's in you and he's there to lead and to change and to remind and to encourage and to convict us. I mean, it's, it is this thing that this, it's a relationship. It's a supernatural thing. So this surrendered obedience is the way that we slowly, over the course of a whole lifetime, become transformed to, to become like our master. So the parable is inviting us to surrendered obedience. That's what it means to build your life on the rock. So let me characterize the one who would build their house on the sand. So building your life on the sand means that you're responding to this truth about Jesus, living with what I call a self-oriented, selective obedience. A self-oriented, selective obedience. And Jesus calls this person a fool. In the Proverbs, the word fool, you know, fool and wise person is, is uh, contrasted many times in the Proverbs. And the word fool in the Bible means someone bent to go his own way. So that's the person that's building their foundation on the sand. And that's why Jesus says that he's foolish. So remember, both of these foundations describe your response to the word, to the spirit. Both the builders heard the same truth, but they're responding in different ways. So this, what is this um, selective or self-oriented selective obedience? What does that mean? Well, it might mean simply this. I don't want to give up control. I don't want to give up control of who I forgive. I don't want that choice taken from me. I don't want to give up the choice of who I'll be generous to and when or what enemies I'll pray for and which ones I'm not going to pray for because they're real, I'm just not. Or how much lust is just enough that I don't need to be concerned with it. It's fine. How much is just enough? Who, who will I turn the other cheek to? What will I trust God to provide? What am I going to do whatever I have to do to get it? In other words, what, what this is telling us is that the foolish person has built their foundation on the sand of their own rights, choices, and control. And, and you know, it seems easier. It seems safer. Um, it, we like, and I like, we all like. I mean, can we go in and out of this? This is not a clean thing here. You don't bat a thousand ever. So we go in and out of this thing. 
But here is the thing. It feels good to have control over stuff. It really does. But eventually, when the storms of life come, and when they come, last fall, I experienced kind of the first ever sort of sickness I've, I've ever had. And for three months last fall, I, 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 was a, I had to cancel a couple of times to speak up here because I was afraid to be up here because what was going on in my body, I didn't know if I would have a spell where my blood pressure would plummet so quickly that I'd be instantly sick. And so for three months, as we looked for the cause of this, I became scared to almost do anything. I, t I told Ann, my body felt like a really old car I don't trust anymore. And it really is the first time in my life where <laughs> I realized what I know intellectually is absolutely true. I can't control my life. So that's the funny thing about this. You know, when we build on the sand, we actually have some idea that we actually can control our lives. And when the storms of life come, not if, but when, not one of us will get through this life without realizing we do not have control. We are not the masters of our life and our destiny. We're not. And so the foolishness of, of living in this way, you know, though that way of life becomes the sand for our foundation. And it's why when the storms come, the sands wash away. You know, I would really, I'm just standing here before you, I would love to live my life like the guy who's built his house on the rock. I would love that to be true about me, for me. I would love to be one of those people who live a solid, unshakable life. I would love to have the strength and understanding that enables me to genuinely and naturally bless those who are cursing me or cheating me or whatever, who, who are oppressing what I believe or my you know, spiritual or religious beliefs or, or if, if I just had the strength and understanding merely to give further needed assistance to somebody who needs help that is inconvenient to me or to offer the other cheek to someone who's already slapped it, maybe more than once. And clearly what I know to be true, to live any one of those things will require an inner transformation of me. It will require me to learn how to listen, to hear, to access the spirit of God. And part of that is through the word. I mean, part of the reason we all come to church every Sunday is because somebody stands up here and opens the word of God. And when the word of God is taught and when worship happens, we give fuel to the spirit of God within us. Like I know, like we hear things taught in here about the word that the Spirit of God tells you while you're sitting here. That's true. That's true about me. It's true for me. Now, like when that happens, what I want you to know, it's not just because you got great teachers here, certainly not this morning. But what is true is that you have the Spirit of God in you responding to the Word of God, the worship of God, and the people of God. And to think that that only has to happen in this room is crazy. It's crazy. 
But, but what happens when we come here? And the thing that I love about this is that this is a living example of the, the interplay of God's spirit with our spirit and our mind. When we worship, when we talk and, and pray with others, when we hear the word of God open. It's relationship. That's what's happening. If, if this is not about relationship, the Sermon on the Mount should be cut out of the Bible. And some scholars practically do cut it out of the Bible. They've kind of said, well, this can't be lived out until the millennial kingdom. That's what they, some have said that about it. So I, I would just assume we cut it out of here because apart from relationship with God's spirit, his word, and his people, this, this, is, this is hopeless. So there's the last two, I'm gonna go ahead and put a little bow on the, our whole Sermon on the Mount study. Um, the final two verses in the sermon brings us face to face with the authority of Jesus. So look with me at verse 28 and 29. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. You know, that's exactly how we all feel. We, we feel when we read this, if we really read it, we are astonished by it. The other thing I think is interesting, two things happen to me when I read the Sermon on the Mount. One, I feel a little fearful futility of my ability to ever live that way. But the other thing that happens to me is this little aspiration that grows up in me to want to be that person. Don't you feel that? This aspiration to want to be that person. See, Jesus knew this was a spirit thing. It's not a flesh thing. It's not a try really hard thing. This is a spirit thing. So there's a moment that happens with this last verse here. You'll see that the crowds were astonished. Like, whoa, this is amazing. What is he, what is, what is he doing here? You know, he says several times, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus was teaching with a very unique kind of authority that I actually can't go all into that today. But just know that he was expressing a kind of authority that astonished them. For he was, he was teaching as one who had authority, what? Not like their other leaders, the scribes. So what basically these people had the choice to do is that they could just be astonished by his teaching and essentially overwhelmed by it or questioning whether or not it's really lined up with what they've always thought before or they could choose to surrender to the authority of Jesus and his words. So I want to bring the picture of the house back up again. So, you know, right at that moment, you know, the audience, the crowd, had a choice to make between surrendered obedience or self-oriented, selected obedience. So when I put this picture back up, the reason I wanted to throw it up there again, I just wanted to remind us again, the storms of life are coming. The picture reminds me 
that there are consequences in life to taking the wide, easy path. There are consequences to it. You know, that building code was not easy to get done. It cost something. It was costly to do that. It reminds me, that picture, that there's false prophets dressed in sheep's clothing that would gladly lead any one of us to the wide path that leads to destruction. They would gladly lead us to look at these three chapters of Jesus' words and say, it's way too hard. You can't do that. It's not even meant for you. It's for some later time. And, you know, to do that is to surrender one of the most profound places in the Bible that invites the Spirit of God to life change in us. So I want to revisit last week's warning as I bring this to a close. So I'm going to come back to uh, verse 22, and I'll read it quickly, and then I'm going to talk for a minute about it. Many will say to me on that day, remember Lloyd clearly helped us understand that that day referred to judgment day, okay? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell you and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. I don't want to unnecessarily take anyone out of the tension that the Spirit of God might be creating in anybody by pondering that warning. I don't think any meaningful follower of Jesus isn't stopped for a moment to say, wow, would he say that to me? I don't want to remove that tension, but I also want to take a moment and I want to flip it around for you to think about it differently just for a second. On that last day, no one in the room is at your last day. I mean, Lord willing, none of us, right? So every person who's ever sat under the teaching of this text since the day of Jesus and heard that warning was not on the last day. So that means everybody had a chance to do something with that warning. But here's how I'd like to flip the warning around for you just for a minute. So while that warning is scary and significant, it's also a gift and an invitation. Because he's telling you and I, who are not on the last day, he's telling us what I desire with you is a relationship. That's what I'm after. That's what this is all about. That the Spirit of God in you, the reason that I went back to heaven and I left you a helper who would, who would bring to remembrance all that I've taught you, who would be your strength, your teacher, your guide, that Spirit was given to you so that I can be in relationship with you through my spirit. And so in that warning, he's telling every one of us, he didn't say, you haven't obeyed the 10 commandments. You haven't done all this stuff on the Sermon on the Mount. 
He said, depart from me, I didn't know you. The only way we know him is by God's spirit, God's word, God's people. And word, like these are the ways we know God because they activate the work of his spirit in us. There's a voice in us that's alive, that is cultivating, is there to cultivate relationship with, with God, with Jesus. I, so uh, last week, you know, I never thought of that application of that text in my life until last Saturday night in the middle of the night to just flip that around and say, wow, God just told us what he desires with us and he's provided a way for it to be true and to happen. And so the warning, receive it as your spirit needs to receive that warning. So this text, you know, to build your foundation on a lifestyle of surrendered obedience rather than self-protective obedience, self-oriented obedience, because that, that self-oriented selective obedience wants you to believe the lie that you control and you are master of your destiny. And we become the fools bent to go our own way. So I just pray, you know, for all of us this morning, as we walk out of here, we are just like the people in that parable. We are. We are each the people who have heard the same words. We've heard the words of Jesus. We've been studying them. We've heard them. We are living in the same world we all faced the same potential flooding last night, the same storms of life, and all of us are seeking a foundation upon which to build our lives. So the question for every one of us is the same as it was for them. Which one will you choose? And I, I would add, which one will you choose over and over? So I have just put a couple of reflection questions up on the screen for you just to take a minute in the quiet here. So what most often describes your response to Jesus' words? A self-centered selective obedience or a surrendered obedience? Just take a minute and speak with God's spirit about that. You know, as we approach Easter next week, you know, we're bringing our Sermon on the Mount series to a close. And, you know, we asked, uh, we sent an email out last week and invited people to share, you know, a sentence or two of how God had, what God had taught them or grown in them or changed in them or challenged them with during this series. So as we close our time this morning, we're going to close with a worship song, but in the midst of that worship song, you're going to get a chance to hear and to read 
just a handful of responses of which there really are probably several hundred of them. And I just want to encourage you as you read them to just think about, you know, what would your sentence be or what was your sentence? Um, and not walk away like the guy in James who went and looked in the mirror and forgot what kind of person he was. Just ask God, what does the Spirit want to stick?